1 John 2, verses 3 through, through 6. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if if you have not been with us the last few weeks or so, I'll try to sort of uh, catch you up a little bit to see where we are in, in, the, in the book. Uh, here in, in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, John begins in earnest to kind of expound upon what we have uh, seen or often called, for lack of better terms, the three tests of Christian assurance. You might recall if you were here a number of weeks ago for the first study in our series in this book, that John tells us the primary purpose, not the only purpose, but the primary purpose or reason that John wrote this letter of first, that we call First John, the primary purpose of it was that believers like us, if you're a Christian, that we might be assured of our salvation. His main purpose was that Christians might be assured, have a sense of assurance of their salvation in Christ. And towards the end of the letter, John actually tells us this explicitly. First John 5, verse 13, right towards the end of the letter, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants believers to know and be assured that we have eternal life. So, you know, again, make no mistake about it. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, having repented of your sin and having turned to Christ by faith for salvation through him alone, God wants you to know. He wants you to be sure and be assured that you have eternal life. He doesn't want you to go through this life kind of wondering, you know, laying awake at night, worrying, I don't know, am I really saved? Am I still saved? All these kinds of questions that we sometimes uh, can struggle with. He wants us to know. You know, there are many, we went into this and I won't go into it again, but there are many uh, even Christian uh, circles in which assurance is, is denied in so many ways. It's even rejected. It's even taught against as if somehow people think if you have assurance, then you're going to live a, a loose life. That was the that was one of the accusations that the Roman Catholic Church aimed at the Protestants about this very doctrine. They said, oh, well, if people were assured of their salvation, it will lead to loose living. It's certainly not what John says anywhere in our text, for sure, as well as any other part uh, of Scripture. But God wants you to be assured of your salvation in Christ so that as you walk in fellowship with him in this life, serving him in your generation, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. It's hard to have joy in the Lord when you don't have assurance. Now, throughout the rest of this letter, starting in our passage, John teaches us those three quote-unquote tests by which we may know that, the, that our faith in Christ is, really is a true and living faith. In other words, that it really is a true saving faith in Christ. And these tests are essentially things where you're looking for the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith. We are to look for those things in our lives as professing Christians. And I, I use the acronym LOT to help remember these three tests. Others use different uh, words for them. Uh, I use them as the word LOT, L-O-T, love, 
obedience and truth. Some commentators, such as John Stott, they refer to them also helpfully as the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. We're going to look at one of those tests this morning. That is the moral or obedience test. That is the first way to know that you have eternal life if you're a believer in Christ is essentially to look at how you're living. To see if you're actually keeping God's commandments or not. Now, before, before we proceed from there, lest we be misunderstood, uh, we have to be careful about what John is saying and about what John is, is not saying. John is in no way saying uh, that we come to know God by obeying his commandments. That is not what he says, so don't misunderstand what he said. He's not in any way saying that you were saved by your works. He's not saying you're justified by works or that you stay in God's good graces in any way that way by your works. There is a good reason that John said all the things that he said prior to this point in the letter. In fact, in a way, you could say that everything from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2, all that, that section of the book, a very short passage, really, that everything he says in those verses is meant to prepare for what was to come in our text and beyond. And that if you were to, we would never do this, I hope, if you were to remove chapter 1 and the first couple verses of chapter 2 from 1 John, it would read very differently. The book would be open to being misunderstood in very bad ways. And so in those opening verses of the letter that we've looked at, what John is doing is he's laying the foundation for everything else that was to come. And what is that foundation that he lays for what was to come? It's the gospel, essentially. He makes sure we all understand what the gospel is and the implications and applications of it before going on to these tests in order that we might be tempted, uh, not be tempted to think that we're saved by works. He wants us to know that, that we are one. Remember, we looked at for, for a little while earlier in chapter one. He talks about sin. And he says, if we say we have no sin, what? We're, we're lying. If we say we have not sinned, we lie and the truth is not in us and we make God himself a liar. But if we, as Rob mentioned in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why is that? Because in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he tells us a couple things. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And also that he is our, even now, our advocate with the Father so that our sins continue to be forgiven and we remain in God's good graces in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes that the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his ongoing work as our advocate before the Father, that that alone is the whole basis, he says, the whole basis of our standing in the presence of God and that which alone gives us true certainty of our right standing with God. At that, Jesus' work, both past uh, uh, his, his finished work as well as his ongoing work for our salvation, is, quote, the foundation on which everything else that he is going to say in the letter is to be built. So if you don't have the foundation right, the whole house is going to be askew, isn't it? So he tells us about the gospel primarily in the first chapter, in the first verses of chapter 2. And now and only now does he go on to talk about these tests because... What John does not want us to do is to base our assurance in some ways primarily upon anything that we do. Our salvation is secure because we're in Christ, and these, te these tests are just to help us see that, our, that the faith that God has given us really is true 
saving faith and really is wrought in us by God. So everything from our text in verses 3 through 6 all the way to the end of the letter really presupposes and is built upon a right understanding of the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our salvation, and the application of that gospel. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is John speaks about knowing God. The first thing John brings to our attention is he talks about knowing God. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know, uh, there's some phrases that still are used that you wonder where they came from, and maybe you don't want to know. But, you know, the old saying, uh, don't ask where it came from. You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, well, that, that's, that sounds disturbing, but there are many ways, there's more than one way to describe a Christian. How would you just, if someone were to ask you, oh, you're a Christian, what does that mean? What is a Christian? You could give a lot of answers that would be just fine. Uh, well, John gives us a number of different answers to that question, even in our text this morning as well as elsewhere. There are a number of ways to describe or speak of what a Christian is or what it means to be saved. And John uses a few different terms and ideas in our text. A true Christian he starts off with is verse 3, someone who knows God. Someone who knows God. A Christian is also, verse 5, someone who is in him. That is, someone who is in Christ. That might be a, a much more important descriptor of a Christian that we don't often think about. And then later on in verse 6, he talks about us abiding in him. That is, abiding in Christ. A Christian is someone who knows God through Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ by faith and also someone who abides in him, abides in Jesus Christ. Those are all good descriptors of what it means uh, to be a Christian. And so it shouldn't, describe, it shouldn't surprise us, rather, that, that John speaks of believers in terms of being people who know God, and also of unbelievers as those who do not know God. You know the old saying again, there's two kinds of people in this world. That's, that's really what John is saying in our text in a very stark Manner. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we're even told in some way that eternal life itself consists in knowing God and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say he gives us a definition of eternal life. You know, if, I were to, if we were to give each other a quiz this Sunday, you know, hand out pieces of paper, make it anonymous, nobody puts their names on it. You know, how would you define eternal life? You ever think about that? You know, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Many people that aren't even believers even could almost recite it, you know, by memory. For God so loved the world, all that. Well, and what's the purpose of it? He gave his only begotten son that we should not perish, but if we believe on him, what do we have? Everlasting life. Well, what does that mean? If your unbelieving friend came to you and said, hey, I, I've heard this verse, what does that mean? What does eternal life mean? What would you say? We might think of a lot of different answers all of which might be fine and, and, and biblical, but what does John say in John 17, verse 3, the Gospel of John? He says this, And this is eternal life. Here's the definition. might not be what you expect, but he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing God, in a sense, in a very real sense, is the essence of eternal life. 
Of course, now you have to say, well, what does it mean to know God? Right? That's there, you have to define, define your terms. And so eternal life is not just about existing forever. It certainly includes that, but that's not uh, what it is. It's not just about not going to hell, as important as that is. It's not even just about going to heaven, as important as that is. It is about being in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is about knowing God. That's the kind of the way the word knowing is being used there. It's, it's a relational term, not just an intellectual term. And so for the believer, what does that mean? If eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, and if you as a believer now, by definition, know God and know Jesus Christ, when does your eternal life start? When you die? There's another aspect of it you'll, you'll experience then. Your eternal life and mine, if you're a Christian, starts now. It starts the moment that you believe on Christ. You are experiencing in some way your eternal life, the beginnings of it, even in this life. Now, it'll certainly be consummated at the return of Christ. And in some sense, when you go home to be with the Lord, when we all uh, pass away, whenever that might be. But it starts now. It doesn't wait until then to be started. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 speaks of God this way. He talks about the judgment of God upon, upon the wicked. He talks about God Quote, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance. That sounds like an Old Testament thing, doesn't it? God doesn't change, right? Inflicting vengeance on, here it is, on those who do not know God. He describes unbelievers, Paul does, as those who don't know God. And on those, he says, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the unrepentant and the unbelieving are those who do not know God. And notice how he equates not knowing God with not obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they might know a great deal about God. They might even be very familiar with the scriptures. They might know a lot of things of information about God, but they might but they don't know God. And there is a big difference between those two. Not knowing God in that verse is equated with, Paul does, with not obeying the gospel. It's those who don't obey the gospel who don't believe on him for salvation from sin. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to believe on Christ for salvation. You know, the gospel, the, the Bible puts it in terms that we might not be comfortable with sometimes, but the Bible talks about the gospel as being a command, we sometimes, we theologians like to talk about law and gospel being distinguished. Uh, sometimes the Bible says things that make us have to be careful in our saying and how we articulate things. But repentance, the Bible says that, that God commands all men everywhere now to do what? To repent. The gospel is to be believed and as well as, as obeyed. Now the Gnostics, they were the false teachers that John was dealing with in his day, or at least an early version of them. They were the ones that were creeping into the church. They were disturbing the purity and peace of the church in John's day, even as they do in our day as well. Now, the Gnostics were all about knowledge. There's a reason that John uses that word over and over and over again in this, in this letter. In fact, the word Gnostic basically means it's, it's one of the Greek words for knowledge. So you, you get the idea of what these false teachers thought of themselves. They were the ones that had the inside knowledge. They knew more than others. Their salvation to them it was wrong, 
consisted in some way of some kind of higher esoteric inner light and knowledge that others wouldn't, wouldn't have had. Um, they claimed to have some inside special mystical knowledge of God that others did not have. But John would have us to know that that is not the kind of knowledge in which salvation consists. John uses one, that same Greek word for knowledge uh, no less than 25 times in the five chapters of 1 John. It's a point he keeps hammering again and again and again and again in the letter. In fact, also in the Gospel of John, he uses that same word dozens of times in the Gospel of John. Maybe John had to deal with Gnostics and, and people all the way through his ministry in some ways. But why, why, would, why would John use that word so many times in both those his letter as well as in his, uh, his gospel. I think it's probably because he was refuting the heresy of Gnosticism in some ways throughout both of those things. Uh, the, uh, the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in which salvation consists is that of being in a right relationship with God. In fact, that's what John says in verse 3 of this letter, isn't it? Chapter 1 he talks about salvation as, and Christians as those having fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Another way of describing what a Christian is and what it is to be one. That's one of the many lessons of why our salvation in Christ simply must result and will result in a change of life for all who believe. It can't, it can't help but change how we live if we truly know God and have fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. It's not just up here. It's not just some emotional or, or intellectual experience. It's an actual knowledge of, a personal knowledge and relationship with, with God. Now, the, the next thing we want to look at is not just knowing God, but what, really what John talks about here is the test or the evidence of someone who knows God. That's what John is, is getting at in our text, is what, is it, what does it look like in the life of someone who actually knows God and the first test or evidence that John presents to us in this, in this letter, in our text, is that, uh, which we found in verses 3 and 4 again, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? What's the evidence we are to look for? Verse 3, if we keep his commandments. And then he gives us the, the other side of the coin, right? The, the, the negative side. He says, whoever says, lots of people can say things, right? Whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is what? You know, it sounds kind of harsh. He doesn't say, oh, they're a little bit off. You know, they're, they're, they're slightly mistaken. Oh, they mean well, but no, they're a liar. He just rips that band-aid right off. He wants them to know in no uncertain terms. You could say that John, in his, in his compassion, really compassion for the lost as well as the saved, he not only wants Christians to know they're saved, he wants people who don't yet know God to know they don't yet know God and still need to repent. One of the biggest hindrances in the gospel, uh, for the gospel in this world, is, is people that think they know God when they don't. You know, we, in recent uh, years, we've talked a lot about vaccinations and shots. You know, some people have kind of had a vaccination of sorts of the gospel. They've been to church a few times. They've maybe walked an aisle at some point, signed a card, prayed a magic prayer, you know, fill in the blank. And they think, okay, I'm good from now on out. I can just do what I want and live, live how I please. You know, I've, I've kind of had my inoculation. I've, I've done the church thing a few times. I think I've done it enough times now that I'm good, right? There are multitudes of people that live that way. 
They, they, well, I did it for it. Or I did it when I was a kid, and now I, I've had my fill. I'm done. I've got that all. That box is checked, right? John wants them to know, no, you know, this is what true faith looks like. This is what the evidence of a true and living faith looks like. How do we know that we truly know God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Even as a professing believer, how do I know that I really know God? John wants you to know. He doesn't want you to guess. He doesn't want you to wonder. He doesn't want you to walk around in doubt. Is it by some special mystical experience? Is it by some kind of inside knowledge that's reserved only for the select few who are somehow on a different level, a second level, so to speak, of spiritual attainment than others? That's the kind of thing the Gnostics taught, and there are people that teach that kind of a thing even today. People often talk about some kind of a two-step Christianity. Yeah, I remember the, the uh, Four Spiritual Laws tracks. I think we talked about this uh, a couple weeks or so ago at Bible study. You know, they, they kind of had this two-step didn't say it that way, but, you know, in other words, there's people that make Jesus their savior. This is what maybe you've heard this before. And then maybe some that really committed, they make the second step and make Jesus their Lord. Does the Bible teach that? Are there two kinds of Christians, actual Christians, some that they're, they're just saved, but that's it. And there's some who make the next level of commitment and they actually follow Jesus. No, if you're not a disciple of Christ, you're a lot of things, but a Christian is not one of them. Now, you're not saved by following Christ. You're not saved by your, by your obedience. But in some ways, you're not saved without it either. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about repentance unto life. It's not to be trusted in as a, as a merit for salvation in any way, but you're also not saved without it. It comes along with saving faith necessarily and in every case, uh, truly. You know, some people think uh, they, they lean upon their emotional experiences to tell them that they know God. I knew somebody in my Navy days who went to a Pentecostal kind of church, and they basically told him, if you didn't speak in tongues, you probably weren't saved. They undermine his assurance based on something the Bible never teaches. All kinds of things disrupt people, interrupt people's assurance. Now, it's, it, those kinds of things are not the things that we should look for uh, when it comes to assurance. No, it's a matter of looking for the evidence that the scriptures themselves would set before us. And the first evidence we are to look for is a changed life. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life. John covered that in John, 1 John chapter 1. But we're to look for a life characterized by obedience to the commandments of God. It's not that complicated. We tend to make it complicated and make things confusing. It's really rather simple. That, that is the first kind of evidence of saving faith that John would have us to look for, that is observable, and it's observable even in the youngest of believers as well as the most senior of saints. If you truly know God through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you will still sin, but you will nevertheless, as the pattern and direction of your life, keep God's commandments. There is a world of difference between being on the narrow road and having the occasional stumble and having to get back up and continue on the narrow road and being on a different road, the broad road that leads to destruction altogether. There's a world of difference between those two things. Some may claim to know God, but if they do not keep God's commandments, John calls them a liar. He says they are a liar or he is a liar and the truth is not in him. According to John, such a person demonstrates by the way they live their life 
that they are not yet in Christ and that sin is still reigning in them. You know, in, in the book of Ephesians, a wonderful book, it's, I always think of it kind of as the, the cliff notes of Romans. It's much shorter, but it tells you the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, John gives, uh, some of us are old enough to remember the show, This Is Your Life, and they, you know, they bring people from your past and they'd say things. Well, Paul basically says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, if you're a Christian, this was your life. This is how you used to be. And what does he say? He says, and you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Same word that John uses here, walked. Your life back then, before you came to Christ, was different. And it was marked by what? Transgressions and sin. Dead in sin and transgression in which we once used to walk. Your life was radically different before you came to Christ. And then he says, what, is, what changed it? He says, but in God's mercy, God who is rich in mercy, made you alive, verse 4, together with Christ. And everything else, everything else changed. In his book, uh, John, John Murray's book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, I very much recommend that to your reading. Anything by John Murray I'd recommend. But he says this about sanctification. He says, there is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. The regenerate, that means the person who's born again. The regenerate in conflict with sin and the unregenerate complacent in sin. Here it is. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another thing for us to live in sin. For the Christian, as John has told us in chapter 1 already, for the Christian, you are born again. You are a new creation in Christ. All thing, Old things have passed away. All things have become new. But you will still struggle with sin in this life. You will not reach sinless perfection in this life. Sin, it's on life support, but it's still living in you. For the unbeliever, it's flipped around. They are living in sin. Sin is the air they breathe, the water they swim in, everything about them. That is what is the controlling influence. For the Christian, the Christian never lives in sin. Sin is never the dominant force in your life once you come to faith in Christ. And that's really all John is saying in our text. The believer may struggle against sin, but the unbeliever shows by his disobedience to God's law that he's still a slave to sin. Christians struggle with sin. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. Paul says a lot about that in the book of, of Romans. The sincere believer, the genuine believer who struggles against sin, has cause for assurance and great rejoicing in Christ. The slave to sin can only have a false assurance based on other things. It's, it's why false converts often look for other things to shore them up and make them think, well, I've done this, I speak in tongues, I do whatever. They lean on something else. They say, well, that, no matter what my life looks like, I've got this in my hip pocket. That must mean everything is well. The Confession of Faith, you might know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, I encourage you to read it, has an entire chapter on assurance of grace and salvation. And it puts it this way. It says, although hypocrites, you know, people who profess faith but aren't, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, here it is, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life, not just in heaven, in this life, 
Be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. You as a Christian, if you're a believer this morning, you can have certain, sure assurance that you are right with God and all is well with your soul. And the scriptures would have you, God would have you, by what he said in his word, would have you have the experience of that assurance. Well, the last, last thing, last but not least, John goes on to speak in our text of those same things, of, of obeying God's commands, from kind of a different angle or a different way of putting it. Uh, in verses 5 to 6, he speaks of obeying God's commandments in the, in the form of keeping God's word and abiding in Christ. Look at verses 5 to 6 one more time. He says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know, there is that same phrase again, by this we may know that we are in him, that we are in Christ. How? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the one who keeps God's word, not perfectly, but sincerely, is the one who knows and loves God. It is in that person that the love of God, really I think that means the love for God, is perfected or made complete. I think it's clear the love spoken of here in these verses is really primarily, if not only, our love for God. Um, and certainly we love God, as John says elsewhere, because he first loved us. Now, did the Gnostics teach that one could achieve perfection of knowledge and love in some way? We don't know uh, what they taught. You know, we're kind of left uh, with some gaps in our knowledge of what they may have taught. But either way, John tells us the real way that our love for God is made perfect or complete is not in some kind of special inward revelation, not in some miraculous sign gift, and not in some emotional experience, but simply in keeping God's word. That, that is what we are to look for, to know that we are in, in Christ. As our Lord Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And as John says later on in this very letter, 1 John 5, 3, he says, This is, love, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are what? Not burdensome. In fact, that's the same phrase he uses in the text that we're looking at this morning, the love of God. This is the love of God. I think that's another reason to think that our text, it's reference to our love for God, not necessarily his love for us. So a Christian is someone who loves God, not perfectly. Every single one of us needs to pray to God to, to help increase our love for him and for each other. Uh, certainly we, we love God because he first loved us, 1 John 4:19. But we cannot claim to truly know or love God if we don't make it our aim to keep his word. That, that's, all, that's all that John really is saying, is saying there. And then John speaks of being in Christ and abiding in him. How do we know that we are in Christ? Uh, he tells us again, by this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So here in, in these verses, we see the same truth, the same principle kind of worked out from a different angle in different ways. Uh, in many ways, John is kind of saying the same thing over and over again in these verses, and we'll do so again later on uh, in, in the book. Now, if we say that we're abiding in Christ, the proof or evidence of that abiding in Christ will be that we will walk in some way the same way as the Lord Jesus walked in this life. And that isn't that, as we've seen in some of our previous studies, isn't that kind of in some ways the very nature of fellowship with God, walking with God 
and walking and living like Jesus did. It's as if we have to make sure that we're thinking in the right categories. When you think of fellowship with God, what are you doing? You're walking with God. You're living life with God, conscious of your fellowship with him. The Bible very often uses the term walk, as he does in our text, to represent our daily lives, doesn't it? And putting it that way kind of makes you think of it in real concrete terms, doesn't it? To the person who just thinks their Christianity is some inner emotional experiential thing, Uh, John talks about your walk. Paul talks about your walk as being your life, what you do in obeying God's commandments. Uh, It it kind of forces you to think in in concrete terms, rubber meets the road kind of terms, real, real life kind of terms. Everywhere that you go from day to day throughout your day is to be done and walked in an obedience to God's commands, keeping his word and walking as the Lord Jesus walked. And that's something only the believer can and will do, the one who is born again by the Spirit of God. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you are, if you are in Christ, what is again, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he buffed off, you know, buffed out some of the dents and scratches. New creation. You may not feel like a new creation. Some days, none of us feel like a new creation. We feel like an old something or other. Um, you know, and, and we struggle with sin, and we think, oh, how could this be? If I'm, if I'm a Christian, why do I still sin? Well, you're in good company. John never says you're never going to sin. In fact, in, in, in Romans chapter 7, what does Paul say? Why do I do what I don't want to do? Paul struggled with sin. Paul still, Paul was a sinner. If we met him, we might wonder if he ever sinned, but he would tell us different. He would tell us he sinned. So in closing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've struggled with a lack of assurance, is it possible that it, that is because you were looking for the wrong things to give you that assurance? Is it possible you've been looking at the wrong things to supply the evidence that you know God? And one of the things John would say is one of the things, the simple things we should look for is are you obeying God's commandments? Not perfectly. Again, don't, don't get it twisted. Don't get it mistaken. We're not talking about any kind of perfectionism. And he's not even saying you might never stumble. He's not saying you might even never backslide. You know, those, those can be very difficult times when someone backslides. But, you know, when you're backsliding, you're not going to have assurance, are you? And that's a mercy of God to get you to, to look at your life and, and to, to cry out to him for mercy and turn back to him, But at times, are you looking for the wrong things as evidence that you are in a right standing, a right relationship with God through his grace? Do you look primarily for emotional experiences for assurance? Do you look for powerful signs and experiences of what some say are the Spirit's work that Scripture doesn't anywhere promise for your assurance? Do you look for a problem-free life? Or material prosperity as a sign that all things are right between you and God. We slip into these things when we're not thinking right. You know, when, when things go right, what do we sometimes say? I don't know what I'm doing, but I must be living right. Right? And flip that around, too. When things go bad, what do you say? Just the opposite. I don't know what I did that God's mad at me. You know, I don't know what dark cloud I, I happened to walk under kind of thing. You know, the old commercial, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, Right? Uh, That's not how assurance works. If you're looking at the wrong things, it can't help but lead to confusion and discouragement. Or do we look for what just simply what God has said 
in his word, starting with a life characterized by, even if it's imperfect, starting with obedience to God's commandments, sincerely keeping his word and walking more and more like our Lord Jesus walked. It's, it's, it may sound difficult, but it's not that complicated. They may not sound like anything special or impressive. I think sometimes we're looking for things we shouldn't be looking for. We, we want to be impressed by things, but, but that's one of the ways that those who believe in Christ may know that we truly know God. What is the direction of your life? That's one of the simplest tests that can lead you to a settled assurance and joy in the Lord. And if you take an honest look at your life this morning and you have to conclude to yourself, you know, if you look in the mirror and you say, you know what? Um, I don't see a pattern of obeying God's commandments. When you look at your own heart, which can be deceiving, as the Bible tells us, but you say to yourself, I honestly don't have any desire to obey God, if I'm being honest. Not only am I not obeying God's commandments, but I don't even want to. I have no desire to do so. Um, that is something that, that you need to take a look at. And if that's the case, the Bible would say, don't deceive yourself. For your good, don't deceive yourself into thinking that all is well with your soul. If that describes you this morning, turn from your, take it as, as a good thing, as God sending you a wake-up call. To turn from your sin and turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about that? Whoever calls upon the Lord shall be saved. Not may be saved, not uh, some, some, but not all. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation will be saved by faith in him. Amen.